timely topics, helpful insights. This is Teaching Grounds. Each episode will explore the inner workings of healthcare, life, and leadership to help you navigate the waters ahead. Today's topic, um, owe some credit to uh, some folks in the ICU. Garrett, I think you asked this, and then Sindra on our Facebook page asked, um, could you talk about albumin a little bit? And albumin is one of those drugs where it tends to be like a dealer's choice. We're not real sure when it gets used, but I see it used, and when I, you know, trying to figure out why a doc is using it, it tends to be different situations. It's, it's not all coming together as a clear picture. So hopefully we can do that for you today. Uh, if you haven't checked us out, check out our Facebook page. It's, uh, you can go to teachinggrounds.com. you got the links there. Um, also, anytime you have a question, this is where a lot of the substrate and a lot of the materials from these uh, podcasts comes from, is from questions. You know, I'm going about my day and I see this. What does that mean? Can you help me kind of wade through some of these topics? And that is why we're here. That is the whole reason for Teaching Grounds existence. So before we get into that, um, I don't know about you, but I have a very long reading list. Uh, not that I've read a lot of books. Um, I tend to be a pretty slow reader. I'm, I have to kind of mentate and chew on on uh, what an author's point is. But I have a very long list of books I want to read. You know, depending on my mood, depending on you know what I've been experiencing, there's different topics that kind of you know speak to me. But one of the ones that I've wanted to read for a long, long time is by Dale Carnegie. It's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I've had so many different authors I've listened to, podcasts I've listened to, um, different people that have said, you know, this is a really important book, makes a lot of great points. Um, I just never got around to it. Well, I finally did. Finally got my... Um, my Audible subscription reloaded on me. And again, for like 20 or so bucks, you can go to audible.com. You can get two um, audiobooks per month. If you've got to drive, you got to remember Zig Ziglar's, uh, one of the famous life coaches, he had some words for you. If you've got to drive, you've got a classroom. You know, my drive is only about 17 minutes, um, but 17 minutes both ways. So, hey, that's about 30 minutes a day. So 30 minutes a day at the end of seven days, you got a three and a half hour lecture series that you can get through. Uh, on any given week if you work for seven days in a row like I do. So that's a pretty potent thing. If you think about night classes, maybe you go once, um, maybe every you know three days a week maybe, and it's for an hour each night, and that's sort of helping you fulfill a course requirement or something. Uh, at the end of a semester, that really adds up. And part of navigating through life is figuring out where you have some margin and trying to fill in that margin, not necessarily the rest margin where you're taking a break and sort of recharging, but the margin in your day where you can fill it with something useful. So that's what I've been doing with How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a bit of a bizarre title because it sounds kind of manipulative, and it's really not meant that way. Dale Carnegie wrote it back in the 30s, and in his intro, he goes into all the different uh, ways he was trying to figure out how do you do life? How do you figure out what is the best way to go about um, you know, being human, being a person. How do I be successful? How do I be a leader? And all these sort of things that we touch on from time to time here on Teaching Grounds. Well, it is a really phenomenal book, and I'd really encourage you to pick it up because it really kind of comes down to 
touching on some of those core human parts of all of us. You know, those things that make us human, wanting to be important, wanting to hear our name, wanting to uh, be a part of something bigger. And uh, it's a really neat book. And again, on Audible, it's it's pretty easy. Just turn it on. I have it on my iPhone and uh, just keeps, um, you know, keeps me learning something new every day. What What's nice too is some of the uh, intro topics he talks about, you know, things like don't criticize, condemn, complain, you know, these things that, yes, we all know them. We all have been taught, hopefully, we all have been taught uh, not to do these things. But yeah, what do we see in our world? We see tons of it. So if you haven't picked up, I would really encourage you to do it. It is really making a, a difference in sort of the lenses I carry and how I'm approaching um, my day-to-day interaction with people. So how to Win Friends, Influence People, Dale Carnegie, got to go pick it up. Um, I, it's been a while since I've done some of these podcasts, and I know this has been on the docket for about uh, two weeks or so. Um, been on night shift, and one of the things I wanted to talk real f- briefly before we go into Albumin today is the night shift. Night shift is tough. All right? If you've ever done nights and you've done more than one, you know it's it's tough to keep your rhythm going, this thing we call our circadian rhythm. Uh, when we wake, when we sleep, when we're hungry, when we do our you know activities, uh, the circadian rhythm has a lot to do with how functional we are, how we feel. And if you've ever experienced uh, you know having a newborn child, or being on nights, or being through med school or nursing school or whatever, you know that sleep sick is the best term I have for it. Uh, when you're just out of cycle, when you're just not doing well, you're tired, you feel sick to your stomach, all this stuff. Uh, it's no fun. <laughs> just just the way it is. So I was going to talk briefly about the couple of things that I do that when I, I and I do seven nights in a row, if I if I do a stint of nights, usually, what do I do when I'm preparing for night shift? Well, first and foremost, I try to keep a cycle. All right. I don't deviate from a circadian rhythm. I'm trying to change my rhythm. Now, this is a little different if you're just doing two or maybe three in a row. That tends to be tougher, although I know several nurses, they do seven in a row for that reason is because it is very tough to flip back and forth. So um, I try to keep a cycle. Now, this is not a normal cycle, it's, but it's a cycle that works pretty well for me, and I judge it by how well I'm mentating, how well I'm you know, able to you know, carry out my duties, how well I feel, um, am I still able to exercise and things like that. So uh, first thing I do is I, I try to start flipping the night before. So I will have a later bedtime. I'll go to bed 12 or 1 if I can, uh, which I'm a I'm an early morning person. I don't like staying up late at night. I would go to bed at 7.30 every night if I could. But I have a night owl wife. And so we find some common ground there somewhere, usually about 10 o'clock. Well, I try to extend that several hours um, you know, beyond midnight if I can in anticipation of going on nights. Now, the next piece of that is... You have to remember what your rhythm is. So if you are an exerciser, an eat three meals a day kind of person, if you know that's sort of how your body is in rhythm, wonderful. Um, you need to try to uh, keep that going. Um, I know for me, I have a bit of a bizarre rhythm. I usually um, try to you know have some rest during the night, sort of equivalent to an afternoon nap, uh, if I can, with all my phones and devices you know right beside me. Um, so that sort of gives me a respite as I'm finishing out the last few hours of the shift, um, if it's you know possible. A lot of times that doesn't happen just because of workload and you know different interactions and things. Um, but if it's possible, you know, just like being in, during the awake hours on a normal cycle, 
um, having an afternoon rest is never a bad idea, even if it's just 20 minutes. And I know that's not always possible, especially if you're on your floor. I'm sure there's some people out there rolling your eyes at me like, oh, that must be nice. And I totally get that. Um, when it happens, it's great. If it doesn't, hey, that's what you got to do. Um, the other part is I try to limit my caffeine intake about six hours before I'm going to go to sleep. So somewhere around 12, 1, 2, I'm trying to cut off having to do um, any more caffeine. I usually drink a good cup of coffee when I get on shift. Somewhere around um, you know 10 or 11 p.m., I'm drinking another one. And after that, I'm trying to just wing it through the rest of the shift. Now, if I'm tired, if I you know feel like fatigue is catching up, you know, there's just nothing else you got to do. You got to get the work done. You got to take care of people. So I'll have another one. But for the most part, I do try to get that caffeine out of me. Now, um, I heard a long time ago, was this guy Golgen, who's doing a pathology review uh, for our boards, and it was some audio series or something and anticipation of our board uh, tests uh, for medicine. And he was talking about uh, when you get, you know, a high caffeine load, you basically, the only way of getting rid of that is exercise. I don't know the data of that. I just know for me that pretty much works. So when I get off shift, um, usually what I'm doing is trying to, uh, you know, even if it's just 20, 30 minutes of cardio or weightlifting or whatever, trying to burn out that caffeine. So when I finally hit the uh, sack after the night shift, I'm just dead tired. And I feel like that does pretty well for me. Now, I can usually exist on six hours of sleep. Uh, five hours I can do. I start feeling it after about a week. Um, you know, seven hours is wonderful. Uh, I think I've had it twice in my life. Um, you know, that's not true. But the the point is, I know the amount of sleep that I need, and I prioritize that as best I can. Now, I got three kids. We got stuff to do. We have, you know, they're involved in a bunch of stuff. So it's not like we just pause life. But I do make sure that that sleep is as much quality as I can get. So what does that mean? Well, my wife does a fantastic job of trying to keep the kids away, number one. Uh, number two, um, earplugs. You know, I'm real sensitive. I'm an auditory learner. I, you know, phonetically, I hear things better. Um, you know, it's just sort of the sense that uh, I guess uh, is most strong with me, I guess. Uh, not that I hear perfectly, just, you know, it, I tend to wake up every time I hear something. So uh, earplugs for me, for sure. Um, and my my rhythm when I'm on nights, I wake up about 2 o'clock. Uh, just about every day I can lay in bed, but it's not going to happen. I'm not going to go back to sleep usually unless I'm, uh, there's some disruption of the cycle. So um, there's that. Uh, regular meals. Um, so when I go on shift, that's breakfast. When it's about midnight, that's, that's lunch. When it's about 6 a.m., that becomes uh, dinner, depending on when I'm going to uh, do my exercise. So... I do try to keep my meals square, um, and often when I wake up, it'll sort of have a pre-breakfast, I guess, um, and I'll you know eat dinner with my family and stuff. Uh, but I do try to keep square meals. I try not to be a, a power snacker or power grazer, um, and that way, hopefully, I'm trying to keep in that sort of rhythm. I know that when I do big meals, big heavy meals, I really that makes me tired. I also know when I power graze all night, it the tiredness sneaks up on me. So again, all things that you try to um, you know, keep the fatigue away. Um, lastly, it's, it's really listen to your body. Uh, like I said, if I'm able, um, I do best with a short little cat nap and then, um, having, uh, you know, five, six core hours of sleep that works for me. Some people are eight hours or they're just feeling like death. The point is that your body's different. You're going to need to figure out what your rhythm is. And nights are hard. I mean, there's actually mortality data that says night shift workers have, higher instances of cardiovascular disease, stress, and whatnot. So the point is that 
Um, it's an abnormal rhythm. It's tough to navigate. And there's, you know, some people thrive on it. Um, I tend to like it. If I was you know, by myself, I would probably do nights. But again, um, it's listening to your body, figuring out what will work for you. And I'm not all for the uh, ethereal, you know, everything is right for you sort of mentality of the millennial generation. I think there's some core things that are true and not true. But anyway, neither here nor there. So those are some thoughts on night. So while you're doing that in your commute, pick up when friends influence people and uh, work on your night rhythm. And hopefully that'll help you kind of navigate. Uh, one of the things I hate the most, uh, if I can avoid it at all costs, is the parachute uh, night shift where you just, you're jumping down the plane, you're dropping in for a single shift and it's just, you just have to slog through it. There's just no other way around it. So, all right. With that being said, uh, several questions on this topic of albumin, albumin, this, uh, thing medicine, maybe we check in the blood work. Is that what it is? Um, it, I've seen the bottles hanging. They're all bubbly. Are we putting soap into people? Um, I've had a lot of different comments over the years as to what albumin is. And um, albumin, if, if you can divide it out in your mind for just a second, it's, it's that. It's a, it's a lab and it's a drug. All right. So the lab means it's something we check in the body, which means it should be in the body, and it is. Um, but also, in fact, that's where we get albumin. The drug from is from human people. Um, we used to get it from pigs, I believe. Um, but albumin uh, is one of those medicines where we don't have the best and most clear picture into, as to when we use it. Now, at the end of this, we'll kind of go into the package insert of albumin R, which is one of the um, uh, makers of uh, human albumin. But the, needless to say, the point of albumin is to be in the bloodstream, and this sounds kind of silly, and do stuff, all right? And it does several things. So it's not just a protein hanging out in the, um, uh, in the bloodstream just floating around. It's a protein with charge. Specifically, it's got a pretty good negative charge. So with that, anything that has a positive charge tends to be attracted to albumin. And that is a very long list of substances. And as we get in more to the lab and you know, how to check and what we're checking, um, just realize that albumin has a huge interaction. And we get albumin through our nutrition. So nutrition, therefore, has a huge interaction of the substances um, that sort of we use for medicine that um, help us. Uh, carry out normal healthy activities like calcium, magnesium, sort of divalent or uh, two plus charged um, little ions floating around. Um, they play a huge role in the uh, mechanics of the body. So let's talk about the lab first. So the albumin lab, for the most part, uh, depending on your um, institution, usually you're running somewhere around two and a half to about four uh, is the normal albumin level. Now, um, in states where you've been chronically malnourished, that's the nursing home patient, the, um, you know, somebody with a high output intestinal disorder, you know, where maybe they've had multiple bowel surgeries and they have a short gut or something like that, they may have low albumin. Now, we don't correct albumin itself. Um, we don't, uh, in the lab studies, we don't, uh, there's no calculation. But if albumin is low, it can affect multiple other um, uh, ion states. So, for instance, calcium, when uh, your calcium level is low, and any good internist will, this will be the next thought going through their head, um, if calcium is low, what's the next thing we check? We check albumin. Why? Because there's actually a calcium correction uh, formula where if 
for every one of albumin below four, so normal level is kind of four, for every one below four, we got to increase our calcium by 0.8. So on any given um, night, I may get a couple of calls, hey, uh, the calcium level is low, you know, it's seven. Uh, do you want me to give some calcium? The answer is, well, what's, what's the albumin level? So if the albumin is normal or near normal, um, you know, there's something going on. Okay, there's no correction to happen. And yeah, we may want to give some calcium. Um, good example, say the calcium level is seven. I get a call. Next question I ask is, what is the albumin? Albumin is three. Okay, we're in a low albumin state. Therefore, we're going to correct, uh, because it's one below four, we're going to correct 0.8 on that calcium. So seven becomes 7.8. And depending on your institution, that may be uh, within the normal limits. Uh, for calcium, in which case we don't have to do anything. So, pretty useful to know. Um, albumin, when we check it, is kind of a surrogate for um, nutritional level because it's a protein and it sort of tells us our protein stores, but not really. And that sounds like a very non-committal answer. But the point is that, yes, it is uh, dependent on nutrition. It can represent a nutritional state, but it's not super dependable, meaning a 2.5 to 2, you know, knowing the difference between those two may not always correlate with the actual patient's state. Now, we do have a substance called prealbumin, which is pretty helpful to help us uh, determine when somebody's uh, severely protein caloric malnutrition, uh, which is the fancy term for uh, when somebody's uh, low on protein stores. So that's the lab part. And just like when we talk about blood gases and electrolytes where there's a CO2 and a CO2, you know, there's two different things. Likewise, with albumin, there's two things. There's a lab and then there is the drug. So the drug itself, um, I think we kind of wish we knew what to do with it. We're still figuring out all the different things because if you do medicine for any period of time, you'll realize the body is very intricate and there's no big switches to the body. Um, you know, V-fib, here's a good example, ventricular fibrillation, uh, needs to be defibrillated. You know, it needs a, basically an electrocution. Okay, big switch, we got that. But most of the body mechanisms are subtle, right? There's interactions in play, which is why, you know, your doctors will often be sitting there thinking uh, in their little cubby, um, trying to figure out all the different interactions that may occur with this drug or this treatment or this test, and basically trying to hedge our bets, figure out what is the least risky, most important things that we need to get done for our patients. So um, albumin, the drug, though, uh, if you go back to its basic structure, albumin, like we said, has that negative charge. And so um, if you've ever done, and I don't know how many out there do, if you've ever done um, sort of the biochemistry of proteins, you'll realize that proteins are just chemicals. And these chemicals each have positive and negative charges. And so when you take a protein, which is a long string of amino acids, and then you curl it up, because that's what they do, they sort of auto-curl and they find their own, they have uh, enzyme catalysts, which will um, sort of allow them to take a proper shape. When they do that, they have certain exposed positive and negative charges. Well, what does that mean? So if you think about water, water's an oxygen, two hydrogens, right? H2O. That oxygen zone, uh, that oxygen molecule, is more negatively charged than the hydrogens. The hydrogens are positively charged. So even in that single three-atom molecule, you have a difference of charge. And accordingly, it actually is something that will attach to albumin. Albumin has a 
um, a pull effect on uh, water molecules because it has a strong negative charge uh, in its um, in its amino acids. So that goes across the board too for a number of different drugs like we talked about. A lot of different drugs, calcium um, and a lot of electrolytes will bind to albumin uh, because of that charge. So when we're administering this drug, we don't actually give it for that reason per se. Uh, we don't do it because we need more you know, drug binding effect. We give it because of its ability to move uh, water a lot of the time. Um, albumin in and of itself, we don't usually treat. Like if you have a patient that comes in and they have an albumin of two, we don't usually treat that with IV albumin. The reason is albumin has a short half-life. It's really there for a uh, dynamic state. So a person that has low blood pressure, received lots of crystalloids, lots of IV normal saline or something, there's still low blood pressure, but we feel like they're intravascularly uh, Volume-wise, we may need some additional push. Hey, we I've seen docs will, that will use albumin to help add some oncotic or some colloid pressure. Colloid pressure is something, you know, medicine, We once we learn a term, it just becomes part of our vocabulary. So it's like, hey, pass the mashed potatoes. Hey, you know, I think we need some more um, colloid pressure or, you know, uh, that's why she's so edematous. She's, uh, you know, it's just the, the colloid pressure is not there in the, in the bloodstream. What does that mean? Well, Colloid is basically a thing suspended in a thing. So it's, think of a jello. Jello is a good example. So jello is a gelatin molecule suspended in water, right? They're not mixed. Like it's not purely homogenous, although it may appear homogenous. I mean, it's not, it doesn't uh, all become uh, one floaty mix of things. Like take salt water. Salt water, you have sodium chloride, water, mix it all together. You have sodium molecules floating around. You have chloride molecules floating around all mixed in with water, it's all um, sort of a, a similar thing there. But albumin is really something suspended in water, I meaning it doesn't, doesn't necessarily um, mix down to its basic components, like where salt will break up into sodium chloride. Albumin stays together because it's a protein. It's got some strong bonds that hold it together. So it's going to stay in a suspended state. And remember, it's got that negative charge. So it's going to have some water pulling effects. So that's the osmotic, right? Anytime you have... Um, uh, something that will cross a, a membrane, that's osmosis. It's the movement of uh, something into, from an area of low concentration to an area of high concentration. The water will go where it needs to go to balance out the forces. So albumin's got that negative charge. It's floating around the bloodstream, and it has that pull effect. So let's think of some disease states that that may be useful for. Well, let's, our, one of our favorite topics here is shock. Um, so think about the shock state. You have somebody that's coming in and they have um, a low blood pressure, right? And in shock, we know that the capillaries leak, that albumin will actually leak out through the capillaries too. Um, and so sometimes we want to try and pull fluid back into the bloodstream to increase perfusing pressures and try to make the organs, you know, get what they need, make sure they have uh, blood flow and oxygen in the right amount and the right timing. So in a shock state, sometimes we'll add a albumin or albumin-like substance to help move fluid uh, forward. Now, we know that we don't do it by itself, right? Because if you think about it, albumin's a protein. It's basically gunk, right? It's something floating around. So if the bloodstream is really dehydrated, really empty, we don't want to add a bunch of gunk in there because you're going to increase risk of clots and specifically you're going to run the risk of causing uh, renal damage because these... The kidneys themselves have very tiny little blood, blood um, 
blood vessels and they're prone to be uh, clogged up. Multiple myeloma does that. When you get myeloma kidney, you get a deposition of um, these little proteins that cause the kidney to clog up and you get kidney failure from it. So albumin itself um, doesn't, doesn't do well. But when you add it in context of a crystalloid, right, we got a lot of salt water there. And then we add this colloid, we add this suspension uh, into the mix. Now, all of a sudden, maybe we have something where uh, we got some better pressure in these blood vessels. And that's one of the instances where we'll use it. And if you look at the pep, the um, package insert for albumin, albuminar, excuse me, uh, human albumin, that is uh, one of its indications, shock, right? But this really requires a judicious um, sort of um, lay of the land. You have to understand the different organs which may be affected. Sometimes crystalloids are more important. Sometimes oppressors more important. Sometimes albumin is indicated um, Again, this is something that your intensivist will be uh, pretty helpful for. But albumin in and of itself really hasn't been shown to tip the mortality scales. We just kind of use it because of the um, chemical properties it has in the settings that uh, seem appropriate. So uh, shock, that's one of these settings where we will use albumin. So another one is in the setting of burns. And, you know, in medicine, there's so many different areas where you basically, a uh, good example is chemotherapy. I don't do chemotherapy. I know the basics of chemotherapy, but that is its own science. Just like, um, you know, advanced blood dyscrasias or, uh, you know, aerospace medicine. You know, it's something that I don't, I don't dive into very often. So you have to be able to say when you, you know, basically have limits in your knowledge base. And burns is one of those limits for me. I didn't have a big burns experience uh, coming up through school. We know the basics of treatment. And so we, are, we certainly are able to take care of um you know, uh, low surface area burns, meaning not a lot of the body is covered. But after that, burn units are really where these people uh, end up going. So um, albumin has some role in burns. Um, and again, when you burn the skin, you take away that layer, which acts as a sealant for all the moisture. So the moisture, you know, people with burns get very dehydrated very quickly. And as a result, um, you know, sometimes they need albumin added to the uh, mix to help again, pull with its negative charge, pull with its oncotic pressure and colloid effect uh, fluids and keep them retained in the bloodstream. Because one of the big risks for a burn patient is uh, becoming dehydrated, hypotensive, just from volume loss. And sometimes it's a large amount of volume you have to give these people. So uh, burns, like I said, one of the areas where I don't uh, dive into too much. But that is one of the indications for, uh, for albumin. Now, the other one, this is probably one where you'll see it the most. If it's not shock, it'll probably be this state. Um, and that is when you have a low protein state and you have swelling or and you have pulmonary edema or and you have, you know, something where you know that or at least as a clinician, you suspect the low protein levels are causing it. So a good example is the chronically malnourished nursing home patient no history of heart failure, and yet they have you know significant amount of edema, and you check their albumin, maybe it's one, one point five, and you realize you know they just don't have the protein stores. They've been sick for so long, they don't have the protein stores to pull fluid from their interstitium, and interstitium is just term for uh, sort of the generic um, uh, cells of a tissue. So. Uh, or the in-betweens uh, between tissues. So, you know, that area of uh, fat and skin and um, in the lower extremities where it's not bone, uh, it's not necessarily, um, um, you know, muscle. It's just in the in-between zones, the interstitium uh, is where we're seeing fluid. So we need to try to pull that out. Well, 
Albumin is nice because once you give it in a low out, uh, low protein state, it can have some effects of pulling uh, fluids. In fact, depending on your hydration state, if you read the package insert for albumin R, you know, it can pull up to 175 mils of additional fluid with it into the bloodstream. So um, it has almost an immediate effect of pulling fluid in. But a lot of times what we'll do is we'll couple it with Lasix or some diuretic. So we're trying to pull it from the interstitium, but then, you know, maybe we don't want it necessarily hanging out in the bloodstream. Because remember, uh, fluid and uh, basically salt water is pretty indiscriminate about where it goes. It'll basically go wherever it you know, dang well pleases. So we do, if we have a volume excess, maybe somebody's very edematous, but, um, you know, maybe they're hypertensive and or we're worried about them becoming hypertensive. We won't necessarily want that fluid just to be pulled out for the legs because it's going to go right back. We want that fluid to exit the body. So oftentimes it will be, uh, your nephrologist or your kidney doctor may couple it with um, albumin and Lasix. So you may see that combination. And sometimes it's, you know, uh, a Q8 dosing, you know, give some Lasix, give the albumin and, you know, do it every eight hours or, you know, depending on your practitioner, I've seen it done different ways. But that is the point. It's trying to, Use albumin's uh, electron uh, or uh, excuse me charge uh, to the molecule to help pull fluid um, into uh, the bloodstream through either the lymphatic stream or the uh, the normal circulatory system, and hopefully taking that fluid out of the body. So that is um, three of the indications for albumin. We got shock. Uh, shock-like state where we're trying to increase perfusing pressures and we've already given a lot of crystalloids. Sometimes we'll give it in that setting. Um, again, it's not linked to mortality per se, but there's, you know, I think the jury's still out as they're trying to find out exactly what it's able to do. So we have shock, we have burns, where we lost a lot of fluid and we're trying to figure out uh, or trying to keep uh, fluids in the body and not have them uh, seep out. And then the hypoproteinemic state, I guess, uh, where you have a low protein, low albumin, and it's associated with uh, edema. They don't necessarily have to have edema to give it, but the half-life of the IV albumin is not very long. I think the number I heard was about eight hours. So, you know, it's not going to stick around very long. So, and it's a very expensive medicine. So you kind of have to question whether or not um, refilling albumin stores is indi- you know really indicated, and at least in my practice, I don't do it um, because I know for the most part we want to work on nutrition. We want to try to get the body's own natural, you know, protein making uh, facility working in a way that'll uh, be helpful and um, be more long lasting than an IV injection. So, um, so those are three um, indications for the drug albumin. Um, for the most part, that's where I see it in my clinical practice. The only other exception is the cirrhotic patient, where you're going to have somebody that comes in for their paracentesis, and one of the things we're worried about is the post-paracentesis uh, renin phenomenon, where um, there's an upregulation of uh, renin and hormones, and we run the risk of having low blood pressure following our um, uh, paracentesis, where all that pressure is taken off the abdomen. So sometimes albumin will be given in that uh, situation uh, because cirrhotics in general, if you know, albumin is often produced uh, in the liver and in liver dysfunction, it's not going to make a normal albumin store. So often your uh, your cirrhotic patient is going to come in with a very low albumin. 
So we do give it in that scenario where you do a paracentesis. And I've had situations where, um, you know, an emergent situation, somebody's very distressed by the amount of ascites they have, large volumes are being taken off, and we will infuse albumin pretty quick back in there um, to try and uh, increase the uh, uh, blood pressure in that setting. Because, again, you got a lot of pressure on the abdomen. You take that pressure off, the kidneys realize, oh, you know, the pressure is gone. And they say, oh, we don't need these you know, potent blood pressure chemicals anymore. And you can get a drop in pressure. So that is at least in my clinical practice, that tends to be sort of the spectrum of things I've seen, things I sometimes will do. Um, it really, it's one of those finesse points of medicine where you, there's really a lot of variation. You have to, um, you have to take in all the different um, sort of points, you know, nutritional state, cardiovascular state, uh, the state of the heart and, you know, how, you know, how's your ejection fraction? Is there pulmonary edema? What's the blood pressure? You know, a lot of different factors we have to take in before we will administer that medication. But um, it's a great question. And if you guys have questions, if you have questions in the future, again, this is the whole point of teaching grounds is to try and take topics in medicine, make them very easy, approachable and useful for you guys in your practice. So if you have a question, jump on teachinggrounds.com. You can email us. You can drop a line on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Um, if you have questions of any kind, uh, whether it's leadership, medicine, conflict, um, you know, there's a whole host of stuff that we want to cover and we'll be covering as time goes by. So I appreciate your grace when it comes to this being a little bit late. Uh, again, night shift will get you. Um, you know, do what you can to keep your circadian rhythm in uh, check. And the best thing to do is really pick up uh, when friends, how to win friends, influence people. Dale Carnegie. It's been around, man, what, 80 years now or so. Uh, fantastic book. So uh, thanks so much for joining us on our show. And we will see you next time on Teaching Grounds.